I sometimes get in conversations with my students who really care about social justice and they'll say, you know, there's so many problems in the world. Why are we focusing on our individual happiness? Well, one reason is that we know that grateful people are more likely to engage with hard problems, right? People who are mentally healthy can withstand these challenging times. There's evidence for what's called post-traumatic growth. Sometimes you can go through traumas and wind up more resilient on the other side. And so worrying about your own mental health will give you the strength and the resilience to make those big changes that we all want to see in the world. Hello, everyone. I'm Arianna Huffington, and welcome to What I've Learned. On this episode, Laurie Santos on the kind of life that truly makes us happy. At Thrive, we talk a lot about ancient wisdom and how so much of it has been validated by modern science. And I can't think of anybody who exemplifies this connection more than Lori. She's a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Yale, where her course, Psychology and the Good Life, was the most popular class in Yale's 320-year history. But you don't have to be a Yale student to take it. She's adapted it into a free Coursera program that's been taken by over 3 million people. And she's also the host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Happiness Lab. There's certainly nobody I'm happier to talk about Aristotle with. Laurie, I'm so happy to be here with you. I spent the weekend binge listening various of your podcasts I had not already listened to. And I feel so much wiser and ready for this week than ever before. (laughs) Your philosophy, your practical wisdom are so aligned with what we're doing at Thrive, your focus on science, on what you call baby steps, and we call micro steps. Your focus also on ancient wisdom are everything we need as we're looking to make our lives less stressful, healthier, and happier. So all these things you believe in and have taught millions of people around the world, how were were they tested during this unprecedented pandemic year in your own life? Yeah, well, they were tested a lot. You know, it's one thing to have a whole podcast about happiness and to think that you're this happiness expert on an Ivy League campus, but it's another to have to put those things into effect in your own life, you know, in the middle of COVID. And for me, it was devastating. Almost a year ago to the day, as we're having this conversation, you know, my students just had to leave, right? Our whole campus was empty. I remember walking around the grounds that were filled with students laughing and things and literally never knowing when they were going to come back. It was a huge challenge. But one of the things I've found is that when you're having a bad day, you know the kinds of things you can do to feel better. That's just been like so, so helpful for me. You know, if I'm feeling really down, I'm like, oh, this is the time I need to be more intentional about my social connection. I don't feel like it. It's going to take some work. But let me, you know, set a time to call a friend or do like a Zoom spa night with someone. If I'm having a tough day, I'm like, oh, this is when I got to bump up my cardio. I know exercise is going to help me. I don't feel like it. (laughs) I'm dragging myself to the elliptical, but it's going to do better. So for me, it's been having these strategies ready to go, knowing even if I don't believe they're going to work, they probably will work according to the science. And that's just been huge. You know, I love what you said. I don't feel like it, but I know it's going to work because you approach this part of our lives, this truth that ancient uh, philosophers like Plato and Aristotle knew very practical ways. And I love the story that you repeat in your podcast about the charioteer. 
with the two horses, you know, one is our appetites that don't feel like it, that want to eat all the sugar, and the other is the part of us that knows better. And I love the fact that you make it very clear. The way to flourish and be happier is to avoid having to use self-control a lot. Tell us more about that and how you practice that during this pandemic year, because I'm finding, especially when I talk to high achievers, very successful people like you, they think, hey, you know, not a problem. I just won't touch my phone in the middle of the night if I wake up. No, you will. Just put it away. Don't let it sleep with you on the nightstand. Whatever it is you think you're not going to do, you are going to do if you have not arranged your environment differently. So tell us about that in your life. Yeah, well, I think it's not just the high achievers. We all kind of have this Protestant work ethic. We think, oh, willpower is the way to go. It almost feels like willpower is next to godliness, right? Like I should have a fridge full of treats that I don't necessarily want to eat if I'm eating healthier. And oh, I'll just avoid them. Or I can have my phone out in this tempting spot. And oh, I'll listen to this boring Zoom call. I won't look on my phone or I'll keep sleeping. Like we just believe that the right moral way to do things is to use willpower. And I think there's two problems with that. One is, you know, I'm not sure like willpower is next to godliness in part because the second reason, which is all the science shows that willpower doesn't work. You know, willpower leaves us as soon as times become challenging. And, you know, the last year has been challenging, right? Like we're feeling uncertain. We're feeling anxious, you know, exactly the kind of emotional states that make it harder for us to do things that are already really challenging. But the good news, though, is that the research gives us a different path, which is to harness the power of our situations, to harness the power of our habits, right? This is a time when, you know, if your phone is far away, you're going to be less tempted to use it just because it's just easier. And as you said, this is something that modern cognitive science has figured out and written a lot about. But it's something that the ancients realized a long time ago. You know, you you told the story of the charioteer. This was Plato thousands of years ago who realized, like, we're going to need to lead our horses. And it's just much easier if you have the horses on a path that's just easier for them to follow. They don't have to use their sort of horse willpower. The situation is just going to drive them in the right direction. And we need to do that for ourselves as we're thinking about our behaviors, right? You know, there's so many habits we want to achieve in our lives. There's so many things we need to do for our relationships, for our health, for good sleep. If we just made that easier for ourselves and made the situations more palatable and allowed us to get to our goals easier, then we'd just be much more on the straight and narrow. And are there any new, better habits you adopted during the pandemic year? Yeah, a few that I really hope will stick around. So, you know, one of the things I realized was that I really needed to be intentional about my social connection. This is something that I had to work on pre-pandemic. I'm not like a naturally social person. So especially when I was feeling down in the dumps, I realized these were the times when I needed to put more social in. But now I realize so much of my natural social connection was gone, right? I wasn't talking to the barista at the coffee shop every morning. I didn't have my students running around the courtyard. I had much less social connection than I had before. And so I thought, how can I build more in? And two things I'm doing now I really hope stick around. So one is that I get a lot of my social connection now in at the same time as I get my exercise, I've started like these online Zoom yoga sessions with friends. And they're friends like not up the street from me. They're friends in different time zones at different universities that I wouldn't see. And even though that was totally something I could do pre-pandemic, I could have called a friend, you know, on the West Coast, even though I'm on the East Coast and said, hey, let's, you know, do a Zoom yoga together. I just like never thought of it. Or it just was weird because we weren't getting our social connection over Zoom. But now that's like the most normal thing on the planet is to meet with somebody to do a Zoom exercise. And for me, it's meant 
I've had more contact with friends I haven't seen in a long time. And so that for me has been a real like game changer during the pandemic. But the biggest one for me during the pandemic, because I tend to get anxious looking at the news and looking at the stats and seeing what's going on, was really to, you know, come to terms with my phone use before bed, you know, and take a page out of your book, literally a page out of your book, and follow up with trying to get my phone even further away from me. And, you know, when you and I had our conversation, you know, before the pandemic, you were kind enough to give me your own little Ariana Huffington phone bed. And it has been a total game changer. If you're like me, you might just like pop up in the middle of the night a little bit anxious and your body will naturally go back to sleep. But if you immediately hit it with the blue light and some scary email and some frustrating news, it's not going to calm down. And so just having that phone far away has been huge for me to get a little bit more sleep, which I know is also going to help my well-being overall. I love that. And it's so much a reflection of everything you are teaching about our behaviors and about sleep, because you often say how when people ask you, what's the first thing I can do to be happier? Your answer is always the same, get some sleep, which is so counterintuitive. And yet we now have so much data around the connection between sleep deprivation and depression, especially during the pandemic when people have had a much harder time sleeping. We've even come up with a new term, coronasomnia. It's all the more important to bring up all the science of sleep around our immunity, our mental health. And for you, you mentioned how you sometimes have the tendency, like all of us, to get anxious, to look at the future, which is so uncertain, and imagine the worst. So how do you deal with that? I've used two strategies here to deal with anxiety and and just one is to really try not to avoid those emotions, but to deal with them. You know, before teaching this class, I might feel anxious or bored or frustrated and I would not like that feeling. And so I'd do something else. I'd check my email or I'd eat something or, you know, have like an extra glass of wine, you know, maybe one too many glasses of wine, right? Now I've gotten to the point where it's like, okay, it's normative to be anxious right now. We'd be strange and robotic if we weren't feeling something, right? We just need good strategies for feeling that. And here's where I've stolen a page from uh, uh, Tara Brock, who's a meditation teacher. She has this wonderful technique that I got a chance to talk about on my podcast, the Happiness Lab, called RAIN, which is an acronym for Recognize, Allow, Investigate, and Nurture. It's a series of steps you can go through every time you're experiencing a negative emotion. So you're experiencing anxiety, recognize. Okay, this is anxiety. And then you do the allow, like I could just allow this to be there. I don't need to run away. It's not going to kill me. I'm not going to like go on some crazy fantasy with this. I'm just going to like hang out and investigate. That's the I, what it feels like in my body. And the research shows that emotions are like a wave, you know, it's going to crest and and feel really intense and then it's going to go away. And then at the end you can do the end, which is the nurture, which is not to avoid your emotions, but how do you really nurture them? For me, this has been really game-changing. Instead of all the negative consequences that come from not dealing with my emotions well and letting them get worse and letting me ruminate in them, just take time to be like, all right, I'm going to feel it now and sort of go through it. But the next thing I think has been really powerful and I think really gets to this idea of don't lose in your fantasies, you know, before you've even gotten there. This is to recognize that I have some control over my, you know, framing of this situation, right? I could think of this pandemic as 
woe is me, my life is over, I've missed so much. I can think of this as this really incredibly cool historic time that I'm living through. And I can tell my grandkids about, you know, later on and say, wow, wasn't that amazing? And I don't want that story to be, you know, I was wussy and I was all depressed and I stayed in my house. You know, I wanted to be like, I, I tried, I helped people, you know, I did something, I found grace and gratitude even in these challenging times, right? We have some control over our own story and recognizing that you have that can allow you to put a story together that, you know, you're going to be proud of later on rather than kind of sad about. Yes, I love that. I love that you call it kind of rewirement in the way, kind of rewiring mm-hmm. our brain to look at the narrative differently. We call it the mindset shift, and we find that it's the beginning of everything. If you really believe that the only way to be happy is money and status and powering through exhaustion to achieve more, (laughs) you're going to have a hard time bringing in new behaviors. But that's what you've shown again and again, that rewirement is possible. That's exactly what the science shows, right? We have these misconceptions that are natural, but all of us with a different mindset, with different behaviors can change that around. We really have much more control of our own happiness and our own mental health than we often think. Laurie, I couldn't agree more. Let's talk more about that in just a minute. This year of so much uncertainty and anxiety has been a hard one for sleep especially with so many of our routines disrupted. But that's exactly why we need to prioritize our sleep now more than ever, because getting enough sleep is what allows us to be more effective at managing stressful, anxious, and disruptive times. That's why we've partnered with Audible, the sponsor of this podcast, to create the Audible Sleep Collection. It's a series of bedtime stories, meditations, and other sound experiences from Nick Jonas, Sean Diddy Combs, Gabby Bernstein, Sarah Oster, and many more to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up fully recharged and ready to take on whatever challenges the day brings you. Remember, a great day starts the night before. And stay tuned for a preview of one of my favorite Audible sleep experiences at the end of the podcast. Laurie, we've been talking about mental health and happiness. And one thing that you've taught so many of us is the power of friendship and connection. If you pick your friends right, you're creating a support system that makes it easier to prioritize your well-being. Tell us about this whole idea, which goes back to ancient wisdom and Aristotle, but which is also practical for our lives today as we try to adopt healthier habits. Yeah, I mean, this was one of the deep insights that Aristotle had. I mean, Aristotle cared deeply about how you can live a happier life. He he talked about eudaimonia as his form of happiness, but also a moral life, right? Like, how can you be a good person? And one of his deepest insights is that we tend to be happier and behave better if we're around people that tend to be happier and are behaving better. You know, and so his secret for living a happier, more moral life is to surround yourself with people who are doing the right thing. But I think we can also surround ourselves you know, in the the kinds of things we do with our leisure time, right? Listening to this podcast where they're hearing about all the fantastic insights you're getting at Thrive, hearing the strategies of the scientists I talk to on the Happiness Lab podcast, and that kind of thing can naturally rub off. It can rub off very explicitly, like where we hear a strategy, we're like, ooh, you know, a micro step, that's good, I'm going to use that. 
but it can also rub off just in terms of our emotions. There's lots of scientific evidence for what's fo- what folks call emotional or behavioral contagion. We literally catch the emotions and behaviors of those around us, even from a podcast or, or from social media or the internet and things. And that means that it matters who we surround ourselves with. Aristotle was right. You know, he didn't have Facebook and Instagram or podcasts back then, you know, but he would have realized like, hang on, make sure you're using that time wisely because the people you surround yourself with in that domain matter a lot for your happiness and your moral life too. Yes, I love that. In fact, today, you know, I pulled a quote that I want to Instagram. You know, my Instagram is just full of (laughs) quotes to inspire and motivate people. (laughs) And uh, Pema Chodron wrote, don't let people pull you into their storm, pull them into your peace. Mm-hmm. And that's really the point you are making. Exactly. And it, and it comes directly from the science. There's a wonderful work by uh, Seagal Barsade, who's a Wharton Business School professor. And she talks about the phenomena of affective spirals, right? The fact that our affective response, our emotions can spiral with that of someone else, right? She talks about negative affective spirals. You know, you walk into the office and there's that negative person on your team and then instantly you're dragged down and you go home and then now you're dragging your spouse down, right? That's a spiral that goes down. But there are also these really positive affective spirals. You know, you walk into work and there's that super energized person who's really optimistic on your team that even on a bad day kind of revs you up. Then you walk into a different room and rev someone else up, right? We really can be the seeds in our own affective spirals. You know, we can be the emotion that we want to see in the world. Her work shows that that happens in businesses and families and relationships. It happens on social media. We forget that we can be the cause, not just the effect of someone else's emotion. Our emotions can cause other people to feel better. And that's a very interesting connection that hasn't been made enough in all the conversations around diversity and inclusion and how to be a good ally, um, because it does start with us. Obviously, there are policies that a company needs to have in place. But again, as the ancients taught us, when they made the connection between our own state of being and the city-state in the Republic, as again, you said in one of your podcasts, that I'm ready to, to be tested <laughs> on all your podcasts, as you can see. <laughs> and that connection between our individual state of being and our company and our country is not as clear. The fact that we can't just have uh, new policies and expect a culture of real belonging as opposed to shifting the numbers and the quotas and the targets. Yeah, we forget that there's such an intersection between our own behavior and society. And it goes both ways, right? You know, the structures around us can really affect our behavior and our happiness. But we have the power to affect those structures. And honestly, one of the best ways of affecting those structures is to work on your mental health first. I sometimes get in conversations with my students who really care about social justice and so on. And they'll say, you know, there's so many problems in the world, right? Why are we focusing on our individual happiness? Well, one reason is that we know that grateful people are more resilient. They're more likely to engage with hard problems, right? Grateful people um, wind up being more ready to take action on tough problems, like take take on these social justice fights that are so tricky and so hard for us. People who are mentally healthy can kind of withstand these challenging times. You know, there's evidence for what's called post-traumatic growth, this idea that, you know, sometimes you can go through traumas and wind up more resilient on the other side. And so one of the things I often say is that if you want to change society, if you want to change 
the city-state, you know, in Plato and Aristotle's terms, the first thing you might need to do is to change yourself. Worrying about your own mental health will give you the strength and the resilience to make those big changes that we all want to see in the world. Absolutely. Also, we know from the data that when people are burnt out and exhausted and depleted in a fight-or-flight mode, they're really operating on survival. They are less likely to care for others, including the planet. They are less likely to want to do something to make the lives of others better. So it's, it's super connected. And I'm so glad you are making us very aware of that based on the latest science and that you are taking so much scientific data to basically elevate the status of simple ideas <laughs> like sleep <laughs> or gratitude. You are making them seem so much more important and significant and meaningful. So we talked about sleep. Let's talk about gratitude. Yeah. You know, again, it can sound like grandmother wisdom. In fact, there was an article in the New York Times recently about my class, and they interviewed one of my Yale students who said, like, oh, I didn't learn anything in this class. It's all grandmother wisdom. But then, you know, I kind of want to ask the student, like, but did you write in your gratitude journal today? Did you sleep enough tonight? You know, are you part of, you know, the 40% of college students today that report being too depressed to function most days? Like it is grandmother wisdom, but even though our grandmothers told us this stuff, we're not necessarily all following it. This is definitely where we, where we see gratitude falling in, right? Like the research on gratitude, this simple act of counting your blessings suggests that gratitude has this like whole host of benefits. It, it improves our overall well-being. So you become happier when you experience more gratitude. Um, your immune function gets better. Your sleep gets better. Your relationships get stronger. In fact, some work by Sarah Algo and her colleagues show, you know, one of the easiest fixes for a marriage that's not feeling so happy right now is to infuse it with a bit more gratitude. It kind of feels like almost a panacea and even for things you wouldn't expect. In fact, there's some work by Dave DeSteno and his colleagues showing that grateful people are better at what's called self-regulation. You're more likely to put the cupcake down if you want to diet. You're more likely to go to bed early even if you want to watch that Netflix show. You're more likely to save more for retirement because you're better at protecting your future self. These are not the things we think come from a little bit of counting your blessings, but all these wonderful ways of sticking to our gun becoming more resilient, facing hard times, they come from the simple act of experiencing this emotion of gratitude. I love that. And you mentioned marriage. This has been an unprecedented year when many couples had to actually be together nonstop and work from the same space. How did you manage that with your husband? And did you learn any new marriage rules? It's too late for me. I've been divorced for many years. <laughs> But maybe you can help some others listening. My husband's a philosopher, so he he tends to have like wonderful insight on this stuff. And we started with this mantra that he mentioned, which was patience and compassion. That's what we need to work on during the <laughs> pandemic. Patience for one another and just some compassion. And I think, you know, those two things are so important. Compassion, especially, and in, we in, mean it in two ways. One is compassion for one another, right? We just need to give each other some grace. This is not the time to be upset about how somebody's loading the dishwasher. None of us are going to be our best employees, our best spouses, our best parents, our best 
ourselves. We kind of just need to give ourselves some grace. But the most important person to give some grace to is yourself, right? You know, if I look at what's making people the most unhappy during the pandemic, it's beating themselves up, right? Oh, I, you know, I didn't homeschool my child in the best possible way. And I'm wearing, you know, slippers while I'm on my Zoom call at work and the house is a mess and I have not been on a walk. And, you know, like it's one thing to experience the negatives of some of those bad behaviors, but it's another to beat yourself up about it. And the research really shows that just taking time to experience a little self-compassion, giving yourself grace can allow you to have stronger relationships. It can allow you to procrastinate less. You're more likely to stick to your health goals. Again, we think beating ourselves up is doing something. This is yet another misconception I think we have about how the mind works. We think beating ourselves up and kind of pushing ourselves, that's what's going to get us to be more successful. But on any metric of success you have, whether it's your happiness, your relationships, your job success, self-compassion is probably going to work better than beating yourself up. In fact, the title of one of your podcasts is Dump Your Inner Drill Sergeant. (laughs) And it's kind of amazing how we do have that inner drill sergeant. I call it the obnoxious roommate living in my head, (laughs) you know, that puts us down, that doubts us, that... uh, talks to us (laughs) like our worst enemy sometimes. And Mm -hmm. it's often the loudest voice in our brain. So any tips for how to dump your inner drill sergeant? I mean, obviously, you first have to rewire your brain and realize you don't need your inner drill sergeant to get stuff done, but anything else? Yeah, well, this is this is the time when you need to engage in self-compassion. And there's there's kind of three parts to self-compassion. One is kindness. You know, we're often treating other people really well. We don't have inner drill sergeants when it comes to our spouses and our best friends, right? Use that same kind voice that you use with them with yourself. And you can start by literally trying to be nice to yourself physically. This is some uh, advice from Kristen Neff, who studies self-compassion. She suggests like actually touching yourself in a compassionate way, like, you know, pat your hand and say, it's okay, kind of give your self a self-hug. It sounds so cheesy, but our brain just recognizes that touch as though someone's comforting us. The second part of it is to take time to be a little bit more mindful and, and mindful in a particular way where you're kind of accepting of your emotions, right? If it's a hard time, take time to realize like, this sucks, but I'm going to kind of allow it to be that way. I'm going to let myself just feel what this feels like. And then recognize that compassion can make you feel more connected to other people. We talked before about the power of connection. And what better way to feel connected to your common humanity than being a little frail? You know, you know, I know you've heard this a lot. You know, when you told your story about, you know, burning out after not getting enough sleep, like you got tons and tons of emails and letters from folks saying, thank you. Thank you for admitting that. This is the same thing that's happening to me. By allowing ourselves to be a little frail in this self-compassionate way, it means we wind up being more connected to the people around us. We realize we're human. We're just like everyone else. And we give other people some grace, too, because then they get an excuse to give themselves a little self-compassion, too. So. So those are some tips for dumping your inner drill sergeant. It's worth recognizing it doesn't happen immediately. You know, this awareness, even if you call your drill sergeant something like my annoying roommate or my drill sergeant or like that jerk Karen, like you can just kind of give it a name. That can also help help you remember that you're trying to do something a little different when that voice starts talking. And humor helps. Humor helps a lot. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And also, as you said, the recognition that it doesn't happen overnight. And that we are all works in progress. I'm sure you would agree, even you who 
teaches these things, who's had a huge influence on millions of people, are still working it out yourself. I feel the same about myself. And, yeah, totally. and so this journey becomes like a, a judgment-free zone. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I'd love to end by by asking you, you know, with over 3.3 million people having taken your course online on Coursera for anybody who hasn't taken it, we're not quite that herd immunity from unhappiness, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, are we getting there? Do you think that the pandemic, with all its incredible losses and grief and pain for millions of people, do you think it's also made people reflect? more on what makes them truly happy and starting kind of a wider culture shift in the world? I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful in a couple ways. One is, you know, for better or for worse, this pandemic has completely disrupted our routines, right? You know, there's lots of research from folks like Katie Milkman and others showing that this can be a moment that we all experience a bit of a fresh start. You know, a fresh start when you move to a new city, right? You can just have habits that are different. It might be easier to start exercising then, or it might be easier to start behaving differently. I think we're all going through this moment of a fresh start just because our routines are so different. We can harness that for something really good. A second thing I think is that I think we've kind of collectively had this realization that we weren't appreciating the old life we had as much as we could. I think back to past me who used to walk into a coffee shop without a mask and just order a coffee, a latte, and just sip from it, right? With a friend, right? We're both sipping lattes. You know, we used to blow out each other's birthday <laughs> candles. We used to go to the grocery store and there was just toilet paper, you know, no masks. Like, I think those were simple things that I think we're all realizing we absolutely took for granted. You know, I feel like I would jump up for joy if I could just go chill and, you know, have a latte in a coffee shop and work for hours without worrying about this virus, right? I mean, those situations are going to come back. You know, when I, now that we're all kind of getting the vaccine, I think we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And my hope is when we go back to those experiences, when we go to the concerts, you know, when we hang out with our friends indoors at a restaurant, when we have friends over inside for a party, I think we're going to appreciate that a little bit more. I think we're not going to be sleeping through those events in our lives. And that will give us a little bit more joy and appreciation than we had back in the beginning of 2020. I completely agree. So, Laurie, now just three rapid-fire questions. What's on your nightstand? On my nightstand is, in fact, your <laughs> your phone bed. <laughs> um, but the, the book that's on my nightstand now is Adam Grant's new book, um, which I'm really looking forward to, The Power of Changing Your Mind. It's gonna yeah, be great. I love it. It's a really great book. What song would you choose as the soundtrack to your life? Oh, uh I, I would pick Wonderful World, um, but not the kind of jazzy version. I'd pick the Joey Ramone version. It's very, very punk and pop. <laughs> what a wonderful world it could be. And is there a lesson that you learned during this pandemic year that you wish you'd learned earlier? I really think it really is a lesson about gratitude to not take anything for granted, that things can change in an instant. And if you're not appreciating them when you have them, you're going to feel really guilty later. Laurie, thank you so much. Thank you for being on my podcast and thank you for all you are doing to help millions of people live healthier, happier and less stressful lives. Thank you. Thanks so much and ditto to all the help. <laughs> Before we wrap up, I want to leave you with a micro step inspired by our conversation. This one combines Lori's point about using our surroundings to support healthy habits and the amazing power of gratitude. 
So simply find a quote that helps you express gratitude and print it out. Then place it wherever you are likely to see it throughout the day, like a bathroom mirror or your desk. It's an easy way to use your environment to support a mindset of gratitude. Thank you so much for being with us. Join us next time on What I've Learned. A warning, this next clip might put you to sleep. And that's the point. It's part of Thrive's collaboration with Audible to create exclusive audio experiences to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up with the right morning mindset. The Audible Sleep Collection includes meditations from people like Sean Didi Combs, Gabby Bernstein, and Nick Jonas, who we are about to hear from. The stories have no beginning, middle, or end, so you won't stay up to hear what happens next. Here is a bedtime story called The Perfect Swing. Nick turns to one of his favorite subjects, baseball, bringing in Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio. What's the perfect swing? There is a good chance you'll be asleep before you find out. The Perfect Swing by James McGurk and read by me, Nick Jonas. Settle in, take a deep breath, and listen to me take you on a journey about the perfect baseball swing. How do you quantify the perfect swing? There's no better time or place to begin than New York City in 1941. At that moment, Joe DiMaggio was an American hero. Nicknamed the Yankee Clipper in 1939, he was the son of Italian immigrants and a superb all-around player with a squeaky clean good guy image. That season, he would go on to get a hit in 56 consecutive games. If you are not asleep yet and want to hear this sleep track in its entirety, go to audible.com slash thrive to start your free trial tonight.